the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. The Lloyd's List Top 100 People is one of our most hotly anticipated products of the year. Now in its ninth edition, our ranking of the most influential people in the global shipping industry charts the highs and the lows of some of the biggest and most innovative maritime businesses in the world and the personalities that run them. 2018 was a pivotal moment in the maritime industry's history as game-changing environmental regulations such as Sulphur 2020, Ballast Water Management and Decarbonisation 2050 ushered in a new era of shipping and trade. We expect new technologies and new players to transform the industry in years to come. Our list will look very different as these changes work their way through the industry. I am joined now by Richard Mead, Managing Editor of Lloyd's List, who has charted some of the emerging trends this year. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Helen. So, Richard, what do you see as the big theme trends in our top 100 this year, as opposed to previous years? Well, obviously, you've got the big regulatory theme at the top. We've put Kitak Lim, the Secretary General of the International Maritime Organization, in the top spot. It's not necessarily him personally that we're putting there. This is the the big thematic trend of 2020, the Solver Cap, but this is the year that the IMO effectively set a date to decarbonise shipping. Pricing carbon into shipping is a generational time shift for the industry. This is uh, something they're going to have to concentrate on. It is seismic. It, it's, it's, it's something that we haven't had to deal with before. So I think it is right that this is the year that we really put him up there. So that's an interesting one. And I think what we're seeing also through the rest of the list is a lot of focus on the, the regulatory changes that are being enacted at a company level as well. So a lot of the individual entries you'll see uh, reference to how they're dealing with it, some more innovatively than others. And that's everything from uh, you know, the digitization of shipping uh, through, through blockchain, through efficiencies of yeah, integrated supply chain, right down to alternate fuel sources, LNG. We've seen CMA CGM this year uh, come in with big orders for big ships. This is a, pretty much a game changer in terms of uh, LNG fuel. So I think there's some really interesting trends there in terms of the industry reacting. But I think the overall theme that we can probably pick up here is the fact that the shipping industry, as ever, is more beholden to the exogenous effects of macroeconomics and politics than it, it really is in terms of uh, having any agency of its own to affect the market. Astute ship owners have already understood that they can affect very little other than their own cost base rather than the market itself. That's an interesting point you make because, of course, this year we have taken out politicians from our list for the first time in some years, and yet we're still arguing that there's all these external forces that ship owner and operators are having to deal with. How do you marry up those two positions? It, it certainly created a lot of debate within the Lawyers List newsroom when we uh, came up with that one. But for the last few years, we've been seeing uh, the rise of China, the trade wars uh, as kicked off by, by Donald Trump and uh, Xi Jinping, um, you know, really take the top spots in terms of the influences. Now, they're still there. And the, you know, the degree to which the shipping industry is influenced by these changes is never going to be anything more than seismic. But the reality is that the list was turning into a, a macroeconomic list of, um, you know, forces at play outside of shipping. So I think the decision to focus it back on shipping was the right one. But ultimately, the shipping industry is going to be um, 
buffeted by these big political shifts that we see. I think the list as it stands now is much more focused on what the industry is doing about those trends. And that's that's important. I think one of the more interesting ones for me this year has been the rise of the non-shipping players coming into the list. Now, I think that is important. Um, we've always had a sort of a, a proxy um, shipper representative. For, for many years, it was Walmart. And then we uh, shift our attention a couple of years ago to Amazon. This year, it's Jack Ma from Alibaba. Now, in terms of scale, Alibaba isn't really even touching the sides of what uh, Amazon are doing in terms of volume. But I think they are there this year because they represent a real disruptor. You know, a firm that's coming in investing billions of dollars uh, over a, you know a fairly uh, you know lengthy um, time period here in the infrastructure of supply, uh, not the assets, not the ships, not the ports, but how the supply chain is being pieced together in a digitalized economy. That's very interesting. I think that will change uh, a number of the other entries in the top 100 over the next three to four years. You've only got to look at what Maersk is doing, um, betting the farm in terms of their play around integration of logistics, not just shipping, um, to see how others are already reacting to those threats. Yeah, digitalization absolutely is one of the big themes that we see in many of our top 100 personalities and the companies that they, they run this year. You mentioned Merce there, you mentioned Alibaba. What other kind of forces um, are, are coming to play in this space? I know we've talked a lot around blockchain and AI and you know those type of technologies. When will we start to see them really make a difference to the industry and to those companies within our top 100 list? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know whether it will be in the next year or so. I think we're still at the stage where we're seeing a number of small-scale trials. They're becoming more interesting, but we're yet to see any real tangible play that is changing the field. Um, so I think people are investing, and I think the more adventurous uh, companies are definitely getting more involved and in, in, in looking at what the next five to ten years looks like in terms of tangible business development plans and investment. But I don't think anyone's really got a handle on on what this looks like on a on an industry-wide basis i think generally speaking we are still seeing those more traditional themes of private versus public uh, scale consolidation uh, the nature of what it is to be a ship owner in the modern era they're still playing out so uh, while we are dealing with blockchain and ai and you know very futuristic trends in terms of you know how the industry reacts to a, a rapidly changing set of technologies some of the traditional questions are yet to be answered outside of that and i think one of the interesting themes is still consolidation you've got paddy rogers in the top 10 with euronav for having already uh, built off the Maersk fleet uh, you know acquisition with another big acquisition in the last 12 months around generate uh, and, and that still plays to those common threads of uh, transparency, the corporatization of shipping, access to finance requiring scale. You're not going to be able to access funds unless you have that scale. That's being played out across our top 100. There are still a few pockets of big, private, deep-pocketed ship owners there. You've got to look at the, um, uh, the Zodiac fleet and uh, Isle and Idan offer uh, as examples of big traditional players. But even there... 
while private, they are still more corporatized in the way that they're looking. And, you know, they're not just investing in shipping. They're investing, certainly on the Zodiac side, uh, across oil and gas this year as much as they are in shipping. They're looking to uh, become big industrial giants as much as they are shipping. So I think things are changing, and I, I don't necessarily see all of those people on our list surviving for even, you know, five years' time. I think, you know, the smaller ship owner is going to have to very rapidly decide what they are going to be doing. Are they going to be niche players? Are they going to consolidate? Are they going to become specialists? Or are they going to team up with the disruptors and try something else? Richard Mead, Managing Editor of Lloyd's List, thank you very much. Thank you. UK reporter Anastasios Adamopoulos has been covering the regulatory space for Lloyd's List this year and has spent a lot of time at the International Maritime Organization's headquarters on London's South Bank. I asked him about the powers at play at the top of the IMO and the influence of environmental and industry lobby groups in recent decisions. So Anastasios, how did the IMO grow from a global maritime regulator to the most influential player in the sector? And what can be expected from regulators in 2019? Right. So back in 2016, the IMO adopted what is now widely known as the sulfur cap, which comes into effect in 2020, which lowers the permissible sulfur content in shipping emissions. Now, this is a 2016 regulations, but this year, the way the IMO handled uncertainties and speculation around it is one of the primary reasons why its influence was so big in the industry. So we've had this regulation for over two years now, but there were a lot of questions and and hopes perhaps that this would be pushed back. But what the IMO did this year, which was very important, was make it very clear that there won't be any delays in implementation. We will have this in 2020 and everybody should be preparing for what will be a massive shift as far as fuel and costs are concerned. So this made 2020 a focal part of shipping businesses strategy, you know, their outlook, future investments. So it feels like almost every decision that at least the larger and influential companies make is based on 2020 before it's based on anything else. And, you know, aside from the impact this has had on on companies individually, it has also helped spur the growth of other sectors, particularly the, the scrubber manufacturers who have seen a massive boom in orders ahead of 2020, as some ship owners prefer to burn the heavy fuel oil, which they expect will be less expensive than compliant fuels. You know, a name that comes to mind is Starbuck led by Petros Papas. They have committed to installing scrubbers across their fleet of around 110 dry bulk ships. And this decision epitomizes the effect that the IMO's stance has had as far as 2020 is concerned in 2018. Now, 2020 was obviously the central point of the year. It's been on everybody's mind. But another reason why the IMO was so influential this year is because they put the shipping industry in a decarbonization path that is arguably irreversible at this point. So, you know, they managed to lock down a highly politically charged greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategy back in April, which has a lot of components, but In a nutshell, it says that the shipping industry will have to cut down emissions by at least 50% by 2050 compared to 2008, which is obviously a a big task and highly ambitious, but it's already had effects within, within the sector. A number of companies have committed 
to hitting those targets and supporting their implementation. There have been calls for the development of new technology to facilitate it. And we've had companies like Maersk taking it a step further, saying that they are targeting a carbon neutral fleet by 2050. But arguably, that could have never happened without the IMO strategy. Uh, so, you know, you, you have to give them credit for that. And as far as 2019 is concerned, it'd be, it'd be difficult to see how they can they can top this year. But 2019, we'll basically see the IMO trying to flesh out the implementation details of the sulfur cap, whatever is left on that end. We've got some outstanding safety provisions that might, might come in play. And then, of course, develop greenhouse gas emissions measures for the strategy, although, you know, that's going to be a slow process and, again, highly political, so we'll have to see how much progress they can make. Another important aspect here is the role of the European Commission as a regulator. Now, they obviously play a big role this year. They're part of the reason why we had this strategy with these kinds of targets. And in 2019, their influence could perhaps grow further because, if I'm not mistaken, at around mid-2019, they will publish emissions data from EU ports uh, that will include data from all vessels calling at all EU ports and will name them companies and vessels specifically. So that could have a big impact on how the shipping industry globally moves forward with decarbonization measures, how individual companies try to improve their environmental profile. So it'd be interesting to see when that comes out, the kind of effect that it will have in the long-term strategy and investment policy of, of individual companies, particularly, again, the bigger ones who have sort of this public image of polluters and who are trying to curb that. Right, so how significant were lobbies and technical bodies in directing regulation and policy this year? So our listeners may or may not know there are you know, several lobbies in the industry and they are quite influential because they are composed of people who know the sector very well, who've got the technical background, commercial background, so that they know what they're doing. And arguably four lobbies in particular had a pretty big impact on regulation this year. So those were the International Chamber of Shipping, BIMCO, Intertanko and Intercargo. Now, obviously, they didn't all agree or put forward the same proposals or have the same strategies and ideas. But it's interesting, for example, that the greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategy that was finally adopted resembled to some point prior proposals that these organizations had put forward. Furthermore, some of these associations also proposed a ban on the carriage for use of high sulfur fuel in 2020, which received unanimous support in the IMO and is considered a very vital enforcement tool beginning in 2020 and arguably at this point the only one. So, and that is that was an industry-born measure. So they were definitely impactful in that. And they've also been quite vocal about safety implications around the, the 2020 sulfur cap. And they are the ones who've ignited the discussion that's happening next year about any sort of safety provisions or guidelines or anything to that effect that the IMO can push forward to mitigate any safety risks that come with the use of compliant fuels, almost all of which we don't know the, the properties of or the effects they can have on traditional ships. Now, another significant development this year in the IMO was the Women's International Shipping and Trade Association, WISTA, led by Vespina Theodosiu, joined the IMO in July as a new NGO. And it'll be interesting to see what they are planning on doing in 2019. And we expect them to elevate you know, the, the issue of female underrepresentation in the sector 
and having that debate openly in the IMO could be could be quite important for the future. And then we had the International Association of Classification Societies, which is more of a technical body. They've been, you know, guiding all these regulatory talks and I'm sure it will only grow. You've talked quite a lot about those powerful lobbies and powerful collectives, but what about those individual within those groups? I mean, we have Kitak Lim as the number one influencer in our top 100 this year. How much influence and how much power does he really have? Right, so that's a good point. Obviously, an organization as big as the IMO doesn't uh, depend on just one person to be successful or influential. Uh, but Kitak Lim has done a solid job this year at maintaining a united front for the IMO and being sensible to needs across the board while firmly pushing out a message in public that the IMO is not going to be lenient with regulation. It is going to implement agree rules and there is no turning back on issues like the 2020 sulfur cap and decarbonization. So perhaps his biggest influence is sending that external message as far as regulation is concerned and adding a certain degree of certainty to implementation. Now, he's also all but certain to start a second four-year term in 2020. It will be interesting to see how he uses that mandate and if and how his demeanor changes, if he chooses to shift certain conversations, certain ways, it will be interesting to see that when it happens. But beyond uh, Secretary Lim, we also have other people that we need to mention for their impact this year. Japan's Hideaki Saito, who is the chair of the Marine Environment Protection Committee, played an important role in both 2020 sulfur cap discussions and greenhouse gas emissions reduction strategy discussions this year as did Norway's uh, Svining Oftedal, who was responsible for the working group that came up with that uh, GHG strategy and is seen by many in the IMO delegates as being a key power broker in that deal. Internally, of course, Mr. Lim is also backed by certain seasoned diplomats like uh, Panama's Arsenio Dominguez, who is also the former MEPC chair and who will uh, certainly have played an important role when it comes to bringing stakeholders together to get consensus on, on difficult agreements this year. Anastasios Adamopoulos, thank you very much. One consistent theme across all our top 100 rankings has been the dominance of Greek ship owners in the global industry, who continue to invest in counter-cyclical asset play and lead the pack in new markets such as liquefied natural gas carriers. I spoke with Greece correspondent Nigel Lowry about the special adaptability of Greek owners that is keeping them at the top of our ranking. Hi Nigel, thanks for joining us. Hi Helen, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. So Greeks really have stormed to the top of our top 100 again this list in terms of presence. There's 14% of our top 100 personalities either Greek or uh, representing Greek outfits. So how are Greeks confronting the changing times in shipping, Nigel? Well, Helen, I think uh, as has always been the case, if there's one thing that you can generalize about Greek shipping, it's that they are extremely adaptable. They may seem to adopt a certain approach, historically, traditional. You know, they've been around for many decades and you think you know them, but they move on and they, they keep their position at the, in the leadership of the industry. And that means having to adapt, and they do. Whether it's new management demands, the IMS code, double-hulled hankers, 
no, no matter what it may be, uh, to stay in the game. They do adapt over time. And I think that's what you're seeing at the moment. Everyone is doing it in their own way. Uh, and there are differences between ship-owning groups. Of course there are. And perhaps the big ones take a slightly different approach sometimes to the smaller ones. But they are having to confront changing times in shipping like in anyone else. And I don't think that they're planning to go anywhere. Shipping is what they know. Shipping is where they intend to stay. And they will, uh, at the end of the day, do what it takes to, to keep their position in the industry. Mm. Yeah, Nigel, some of the biggest changes coming down the line, as we know, are regulatory changes. And certainly the most immediate would be Sulphur 2020, quickly followed by decarbonisation in 2050. Is this being reflected in um, the Greek entrance in our top 100 this year? I think the Greek entrance perhaps do not as a whole uh, reflect so much the, the trend of the moment. It's, it's more that some of the major personalities, some of the major ship-owning groups uh, evolve, and whether it's through diversification or through strengthening their specialized uh, sector, uh, they are very much remaining uh, at the front of the industry. So you have, for example, John Anglicousis, the Anglicousis Shipping Group, investing in the three areas that they have been focusing on for the last decade or two, which is dry bulk tankers and LNG carriers. But they continue to, to invest, to strengthen, to, to investigate the new technologies available, making themselves more efficient. And, of course, uh, they are confronting uh, the need to comply with regulations from January the 1st, 2020. And in their case, they have gone for uh, scrubbers for quite a lot of the big ships. Others do it differently. But I think that there's no one instance where you are looking at owners who are just ahead of the game or ahead of uh, the entire industry or developing some new product or, or some new uh, wrinkle which is necessarily revolutionary. I don't think that uh, the Greek contingent reflects 100% those topical trends. They're just grappling with these things uh, successfully for the most part, like anyone else, and their overall presence in the industry remains extremely strong. You mentioned um, some long-term investment trends there by uh, John Angelacousis of the Angelacousis Group. In general, do you see the Greek ship owners, the Greek contingent, as being particularly bullish or particularly conservative on investment? Well, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, the whole of the shipping industry is uh, caught in a funny place right now, isn't it? I mean, there's, I, I think the days of being purely bullish are probably behind us. Uh, I think uh, even those who are bullish today uh, have learned lessons over the past few years, and uh, even the bullishness is sometimes laced with a little bit of caution. Having said that, though, uh, you know, they're, they're picking and choosing their sectors. Uh, so, for example, Angeliki Frangu and her Navios group. She's sort of well diversified anyway in tankers and, uh, and dry bulk, but the last year or so has been particularly notable for uh, a really big push into container ships, which will probably be a positive for the group. You've got uh, George Economou as well, also prominent in the top 100. And again, 
just as Ang Lee Kiefer Andrews had container ships in the last few years. He has been involved with LNG carriers since, I think, 2011. But the last year has seen his group push ahead, really, to become quite a significant player in LNG. I think right now they have 11 LNG carrier new buildings on order, which is, I believe, the, the largest amount at this particular moment in the world. So, you know, the focus has shifted. They remain uh, a significant presence in dry bulk and, uh, and tankers, but, you know, LNG is uh, particularly what they're pushing ahead on right now. You know, there is a lot of investment. Uh, Greeks continue to invest in shipping. It's what they know. It's what they're committed to. They are picking and choosing their times. Sector by sector, you know, there is a certain amount of confidence and hope. Uh, but I think, you know, the message of the last few years across shipping worldwide has been uh, a little bit more caution and skepticism about uh, market prognosis than perhaps there was 10 or 20 years ago. Nigel Lowry from Athens, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Helen. Earlier, I spoke with markets reporter Indipreet Walia in Singapore and Asian news editor Vincent Wee in Hong Kong about the trends they were seeing in dry bulk, shipbuilding and scrapping. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Top 100 podcast, Indipreet Walia and Vincent Wee. Hey, hi, Helen. Hi, Helen. Good to be on board. Indipreet, I'd like to start with you, if I may. One of the trends that we are seeing in the top 100 is that a number of breakthrough personalities or new faces are making the list this year, many of whom are based in Asia, including Singapore and Hong Kong. You've covered at least one of them, Pacific Basin's Matt Bergeland, who may be new to our list, but has actually been in the maritime industry for 32 years. What has made him break through to the top 100 this year? Okay, so I think the entry this year for Pacific Basin is really very interesting because they have been a winner in uh, Lloyd List Global Awards as well as Lloyd List Asia Awards. Basically, I think this company has been doing really, really good in the dry bulk market when the entire segment was really struggling to uh, meet ends because the freight rates were really record lows. And Matt's company, Pacific Basin, which is based out of in Hong Kong had actually uh, grew its fleet to around 111 vessels, which are owned vessels. And if you add in the chartered vessels, the company um, operated around 225 vessels. So basically that's a, that's a big number. But the thing is, is the, the company operates only on the smaller segments, which are known, uh, which are the geared vessels including the hand sizes and the supramaxes so these uh, so maybe that's one of the reason why the company has not got so much spotlight before but uh, this year the um, along with the addition to the fleet the company actually got a seven year revolving credit facility backed by 50 of its vessels without any mortgage which is a really big deal but what brings in uh, the company to our top 100 list, the innovative approach the company used for funding the acquisition of its five new buildings in July this year. Okay, could you tell me a little bit more about that particular deal? What was innovative about that funding structure? 
the transaction uh, was basically among uh, one of the first in the shipping sectors, which which is an equity follow-on offerings, which basically reopened uh, the equity capital markets financing for the segment. So what happened was that the company was positioned even better for a recovering market, and uh, which strengthened its balance sheet uh, at a time when the uh, when the market was moving really slow. And specifically because there was not much interest from the banks or the other leasing houses, this uh, funding got more of structure in Asia. So uh, the company basically negotiated with the ship owners the concept of settling the consideration by a combination of Pacific Basin shares and cash and an equity-based solution which comprised a simultaneous equity follow-up on ship sellers and a private private placement to institutional investors. So basically, this was a really new concept for a shipping company to go through. As a result, you know, the Pacific Basin claimed that the deal grew their own fleet and reduced their Supramex daily break-even levels, which was really important because the freight rates were re really record lows and, and to meet the break-even points was also difficult for the shipping companies. Indapreet, you also covered GMS, which has been on the top 100 list for many years now as the world's biggest shipbreaker. The big talking point in that sector is the European Ship Recycling Convention, which seeks to introduce higher standards of safety and environmental stewardship on the ship scrapping industry. With no Indian yards included in the final list of yards approved to handle the recycling of European flagships from next year, do you think there'll be a capacity limitations to handle scrapping? Oh, that's an interesting question, actually, Helen. Although the applications from uh, other facilities are still being processed by the European Ship Recycling Regulation, but they have already come out with list which includes 26 facilities, including three from outside the European Union, but of course not and uh, not a single uh, yard from the Indian subcontinent region, which is one of the major recycling region in the world. So uh, those uh, non-EU shipbreakers uh, comprise of two from Turkey and one from Texas. So although uh, I think around 11 uh, Indian recyclers had applied to the list, uh, they couldn't make it. And initially, when the regulation was to be entered into force, the list basically said that it, there should be yards uh, comprised of, I think, 2.5 million uh, lightweight ton of annual recycling capacity. But the, the, the list which came out uh, this month is actually it just has capacity of 1.7 million uh, LDT. So basically, if you if you look at this point, uh, it's really clear that the demolition capacity is less and there are not many yards which could now facilitate to the European Union regulation, mm -hmm. which means there's still a chance for the Indian uh, yards to get in, uh, into the list. That is interesting. So how has GMS or any of the other Indian yards responded to this? Yeah, so GMS, who is one of our the top 100 entrants, is actually one of the largest cash buyers uh, for demolition vessels. And um, 
and according to GMS, actually, the current market can get disrupted if the uh, demolition prices uh, in these yards go very low. So basically, they are very confident about uh, entering into the next list, but they are not actually uh, convinced about how the distortion would take place on the ship demolition price side. Um, one more interesting thing about the about GMS as a cash buyer is to make a responsible ship recycling program, which would provide a report on the carbon footprint of every vessel it recycles. So this is this is a really interesting uh, step because none of the EU um, none of the yards in the EU list actually does this. I think this might actually promote the Indian yards to get into the list very soon. Now over to Vincent. Vincent, you cover the South Korean shipbuilders, including Samsung Heavy Industry, Daewoo Shipbuilding Heavy Industry, and Hyundai Heavy Industry, which have all bucked the general trend this year and slid down our top 100 rankings. What do you see as the differentiating factor among the Korean yards as they try to find their way out of this current slump? Well, I think looking at the Korean yards, um, it's really going to be all about gas and hot air this year, meaning basically the ones that have gotten early into the gas market found their technological niches in securing orders for uh, new gas carriers are going to be the ones that um, are going to be sitting pretty in the year ahead. The ones that have gotten stuck or haven't uh, innovated and moved on at times, trying to continue to remain uh, based or reliant on their, their mainstay, the previous mainstays of the offshore uh, and um, heavy engineering work are the ones that are probably going to uh, well, have already been uh, seeing trouble this year and continue to do so in the year ahead. Mm. So do you see any one Korean yard pulling away from the others in the coming year? Well, I mean, to be honest, they're all equally bad state. Uh, but, you know, just sort of based on the fact that uh, this is the only guy that's kept his job over the past year, uh, they will, the SME uh, boss, Jang Sung Ip, uh, seems to be um, the only one that's, well, not only has he secured, you know, sort of $3 billion worth of, of LNG carrier orders, but, uh, you know, he's, he's actually put his job on the line this year, declaring that he would resign if, uh, you know, the company didn't return to profits and starting to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and, well, he's seen it good so far. Um, so just based on that, I suppose um, it would seem to be <laughs> the best bet if I were betting men. Now, Vincent, you also covered a number of Chinese companies and personalities this year, which are the second most represented nationality after Greeks on our list this year. How are China and Chinese companies such as Sinopec, for example, standing out as the industry as a whole prepares for the new regulatory environment post-2020? I mean, I'd say China as a whole has, you know, really come on into its own this year, just ahead, well, clearly ahead of um, a lot of other nations, and their companies uh, have followed suit as well. Uh, for example, um, China's been the first to actually declare ecozones or, or suffer zones uh, one year ahead of the IMO timetable, uh, 
uh, starting from the beginning of uh, 2019. Um, I mean, it, it could be argued that, you know, being sort of a, a more planned sort of an economy, um, it, would then, it then follows that uh, it's quite easy for their state-owned companies such as Sinopec to follow along and follow suit, uh, providing the sort of facilities and the, the supply that uh, would be needed for these uh, regulations to, to, to take effect. Uh, but, you know, I think all in all, um, it's, it's a good example for the rest of the world how, you know, sort of a planned, coordinated effort can really make a difference. Mm. So do you think there are any lessons that can be learned from Chinese companies around Sol for 2020 and indeed in preparations for decarbonisation 2050? I think the biggest lesson that can be learned, so the biggest sort of example that uh, the Chinese are giving is, um, you know, you, you just got to set your mind to it and, and have a clear determination at a national level across all jurisdictions and just, just get to it. and. Um, arguably, once again, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier to do in China, maybe, because of, of uh, political conditions there uh, and, and, and governing conditions there. But um, notwithstanding, I think um, just to have a very clear mindset and a clear example that this is what we would like to do in terms of uh, environmental regulations um, is, is an is a, you know, outstanding example for the rest of the world. Interpreet Walia in Singapore and Vincent Wee in Hong Kong, thank you very much. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, Helen. The world's top 100 container ports moved nearly 588 million TEU in 2017, a rise of 6% year-on-year, evoking memories of industry glory days off the back of two consecutive years of subdued volume growth. Linton Nightingale, editor of The Intelligence magazine, spoke with me about the dominance of Chinese ports in global trade and one standout acquisition by DP World. Linton, you covered our Top 100 box port personnel for our Top 100 rankings. What are the key developments here? Hi, Helen. So I think the key development last year was a real slowdown on port development and new greenfield projects. And it was really an idea of the main port operators bunkering down with what they've already got and making sure to make the most of their assets. Now, I wasn't to say that there wasn't any new developments, because there were. However, most of it came from the Chinese side, which is now dominating the market. What were some of those key developments in China, Linton? Okay, so as I said, there's been a, um, a state of acquisitions from the Chinese port operators, um, Costco shipping ports, over the past few years as part of its steadfast asset building strategy. It's uh, taking over some quite um, high profile ports recently. This includes Piraeus in Greece, the transshipment hub, and also Neriton, the Spanish port operator. The volumes here are now starting to bear fruit of this asset strategy, which is also underpinned by the wider One Belt, One Road strategy of China. And I understand it's not just the Chinese ports that are being particularly acquisitive this year. Uh, DP World also made an interesting acquisition that caught your eye. Yeah, absolutely. So this wasn't on the terminal side. So this was on 
the acquisition of European short sea specialist Unifida grabbed the whole industry's attention, really. Um, box carriers buying up terminals, it happens a lot. But terminal operators moving to acquire a shipping line is something that you don't see every day. And this is a smart move. For DP World, which doesn't have an affiliated line to its name, it's used a cliche, had to think outside the box as a way of creating value to customers to ensure that volumes and, of course, services continue to call at its ports. And this is just in Europe, but whether other operators, other smaller operators will look to do this sort of thing could well happen. And also for the top 100, it's why their chairman and chief executive, Boon Salahem, has moved up the rankings this year. And finally, I spoke with our US correspondents, Mark Fucek and Eric Watkins, about some of the new faces representing the US maritime industry and why LNG-fueled vessels could be the future of US short sea shipping. Hello, Mark. Hi, Helen. And hello to Eric. Hello, Helen. Mark, I'll start with you. We've had a number of new faces and new personalities in our Lloyd's List Top 100 this year. Fully 21% of the list are new personalities. I know you covered Gary Vogel from Eagle Bulk. Why in particular do we focus on him and his company this year? Yeah, good question. Gary Vogel became CEO of Eagle Bulk in 2015, set out making some decisive moves. He immediately began transforming the company into a more active owner-operator rather than just a tonnage provider, selling smaller ships, and uh, the company now solely relies on ultramaxes and supermaxes. In 2018, his decisive decision was uh, to outfit 37 of its 47 ships with scrubbers ahead of the IMO's regulations. Many owners were choosing to hedge, outfitting about a third of their fleet with scrubbers, but Mr. Vogel told me that scrubbers became the economical decision once management became comfortable that heavy fuel oil would be available and the sulfur ban would be adopted. Okay, so how else did preparations for the sulfur cap play into our top 100 list this year? Sure, so Tom Crowley uh, came in of Crowley Maritime. He's actually in there every year, but he may have helped lead the way on a future step in the industry's move towards sulfur-free shipping with the development of two LNG-fueled vessels this year. Some see LNG fuel as the next logical step, but it's a complicated step because to rely on LNG for fuel, you need to know you'll be able to resupply your ship. In the case of Crowley Maritime, before they could order new ships, Mr. Crowley said he spent about two and a half years negotiating a reliable fuel delivery system. The result is trucking of fuel from a plant in Jacksonville to an Eagle LNG facility, where the two ships get refueled every other week. This type of lengthy negotiation, bringing in multiple partners, could be used as a model for the industry as it transitions to LNG as fuel. Mark Fucek, US East Coast correspondent, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Eric, I'd like to bring you in here, uh, if I may. We've been talking to Mark about some of those new faces, new personalities coming into our top 100 list this year. And one who might raise some eyebrows, who you know might get some people talking, is the ITF's Paddy Crumlin. What do you think about having union representation on our list this year? Well, I think it's very, very important. In the shipping industry, we all know there's a variety of people in it, all the way from people who own the ships, people who operate them, 
people who deliver the goods and people who bring those goods ashore. And all the way up and down the line, it's people. And I think it's very, very important to keep in mind the, uh, the union people because, well, for sure here in Los Angeles, um, they are absolutely crucial in the operations of this port, especially the longshoremen and the warehouse people. So I think it's a, a very, very important reminder of these almost at times hidden people in the industry to have someone like Patty Crumlin be on our list. I think it's a very, very good thing to do. Eric, you also made particular mention of India's richest person, Sri Mukesh Ambani, who is chairman, managing director, and the largest shareholder in Reliance Industries. Why do you think Mr. Ambani rates in our top 100? Well, he's been up at the, the top 100 for several years, and uh, I, I found him to be an extremely interesting personality. What I like most in what I saw this year was not his company's investment in a telephone company called Geo. Rather, it was his investment a couple of years ago in upgrading his refinery complex in India. This is extremely important because the, the refinery upgrades mean that his company is going to be on track to be able to produce the kinds of fuels necessary when IMO 2020 comes into play. That means he's going to be a supplier, his company is going to be a supplier, but it also means that he's a very foresighted person and in the process has earned his company a large amount of money while at the same time providing a service for the shipping community. Eric Watkins, Lloyd's List West Coast correspondent, thank you very much. I'm Helen Kelly, Europe Editor-in-Chief at Lloyd's List. This has been your Lloyd's List Top 100 podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.